0: Today on the 218 podcast, I'm chatting to Darren Campbell, the Olympic gold medalist about his unbelievable career as he prepares to release his biography, Track Record, Darren Campbell. Darren Campbell, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Uh, It seems like you've not wasted time during lockdown. (laughs) No, um,
1: yeah, it's a crazy one, but... um... A guy called Tristan Bevan spoke to me over a number of years about writing a book. And uh, I've always gone, shied away from it really. And uh, during lockdown, he managed to convince me that it could be a good time. Um, Also, I knew it was his dream to one day write a book. He's never written a book before. So I thought I'd take the gamble. So yeah.
0: (laughs) Has the gamble worked out, that's the question. (laughs)
1: Well, I guess everybody else will decide that. Well, yeah, no, yeah. Fantastic job. I think the good thing was, because we know each other, um, it was easy to sit down and really just go through my life and discuss the different things that I've been through. And he was uh, very sympathetic in the way that he wrote it. And I think that was the most important bit for me, that it came across sympathetic, but also showed the, the highs and the lows. And probably the lows more... More importantly than the highs, you know, uh, everybody goes through stuff in life, and at times it's hard to keep going, um, especially when you're a professional sports person. Um, So yeah, I just wanted, I just wanted people to gain a little bit more understanding of who I am and how I got to where I got to.
0: Um, If I could just ask you about about a couple of highs, maybe to start off with, just kind of when you thought I'm going to write this book, which highs? pop straight away into memory, these are the things I'm going to include? Because I imagine the medals at the Olympics are going to be the obvious ones.
1: Yeah, yeah, obviously. Look, the, the medals are, are important because I was an athlete, so um, you wouldn't be speaking to me if I didn't win any medals. <laughs> <laughs> no, we would, honestly, we would. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you maybe will want to talk to me, but uh, look, the, the Olympic gold was the pinnacle. Um, That was something I dreamt of from being a young boy and to actually stand at the top of the podium. Uh, Unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, People always say about a dream come true, but yeah, winning that Olympic gold that night in Athens, uh, it's a memory that will never leave me. Obviously, the birth of my my three children um, is very important. And look, they were the catalyst, really, for writing this book after going through illness problems a couple of years ago. Um, I just felt, if I don't write it now, will I ever write it? And, yeah, after getting a shock like that, it was also a case of, will I remember it?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. I, w- I was surprised how ill you actually were. Because I knew you'd, you'd fallen ill, but it's 2018, am I correctly yeah. saying, you had a bleed on the brain, and you are close to death.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it's one of those um, times in your life where you gain a lot of perspective. Um, As I say, in the book, I've been through different stuff. I've had highs and lows, but um, that was a a massive low, not just for myself, but more importantly for my family. Um, Yeah, just seeing the fear in their eyes, knowing that they potentially nearly lost me. um, Yeah, that, that kind of wakes you up and yeah, it makes you grateful, it makes you grateful each day when you wake up, I, you know, I'm grateful that I can take that breath and yeah, you appreciate life on a different level.
0: Yeah, so has it changed you at all? Because I'm aware of some people, you know, John Hartson I think was one footballer who got really ill, um, you know, people, sportsmen as well, kind of, who fall nil, that kind of point in life has really changed them as a person, they, their career, their life has just really split a different path. Have you felt that like you've kind of done something similar?
1: Um, it gives you a different perspective on life. Um, I think uh, you value life in a, in a totally different way. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily it's changed me. Well, look, it has changed me because it's made me slow down. And um, as I say, appreciate the, the smaller things in life. When you're riding high as a sports person, you're kind of fully focused on what you're trying to do. Um, and that is paramount. That is the most important thing. Everything else comes secondary. Um, but when you go through a a life-changing situation like that, where, as I say, look, first and foremost, I had to fight for my life, and then you never know how you're going to be on the other side. It's only two years. Um, Yeah, it's it's just something that I work on day to day, Mm -hmm. I think is the best way for me to explain it. Each day I wake up, and as I say, God's grace, I'm grateful for that, I'm thankful for that, and then we, we progress with the day from there. I probably don't plan as far ahead as I used to. Um, everything that I used to think was so far ahead, you know, yeah. maybe a year, two years, three years in advance. Whereas, as I say now, I just appreciate every single moment.
0: Um, in the book, before we slapped the on this, we were chatting football, both Man United fans. Yeah. Again, I had a chat with Tristan kind of uh, in the week and he said, you are a really promising footballer. Um playing semi-pro football. How's the football been mentioned in your book?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's crazy how I got into football. I always loved football as a kid, but um, when I moved to South Wales, um, I got a bit of an injury, which meant I couldn't run the way that I used to run as a junior athlete, um, where I'd had pretty much, yeah, decent success. I'd become European junior champion over 100, 200 metres, went to the World Juniors, finished second over a hundred, 200 meters. So, you know, everything just seemed simple <laughs> and easy. Um, unfortunately, I picked up a hamstring injury. I was involved in a car crash, damaged my back, and it just meant I couldn't run like I used to. So while recovering from that, um, I started playing semi-pro football. Um, so, uh, well, I started playing for like Cumbrian Town and yeah. uh, a lot of the clubs in Wales. Because that last uh, thing,
0: I saw the list and Cumbrian Town. Um, you reckon to Cardiff, as they were back in the day, Newport County, yeah. all these boys in South Wales. <laughs> How does South Wales get their, their claws into you early? <laughs> yeah, definitely. But look,
1: I'm always very realistic. Um, I would never have made it at the highest level. And I think um, having got near the highest level in athletics, it was always, I was always torn in between. But yeah, the story goes. Um, I was playing for Cumberland Town, I think against... No, I can't even remember who against. But um, it was a bit, a bit further West Wales. And um, a scout came in after, um, after the game and just said, oh, look, I can get you trials. I'm a scout from Liverpool. So he goes, uh, you're not ready for Liverpool, <laughs> but I can get you trials. <laughs> so the next thing I knew, I went on trial with Millwall. Um, I was a striker but they played me right wing so that was a bit of a nightmare and then I went to Plymouth Argyle and played a lot of reserve games there scored quite a few goals and um, yeah just didn't I was waiting really because it was near the end of the season so I was waiting to hear whether Plymouth were going to offer me a contract and in the meantime um, a club called Weymouth uh, made contact with me and offered me a two-year contract I think at the time I was working for an insurance company, I was taking home 583 quid a month. Um, and uh, Weymouth offered me 200 pounds a week. Um, and they'd help with my accommodation for six months. So I was like, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. So I was up there talking with the chairman, um, came back home the following day, uh, cause I was still waiting to make up my mind. The following day, um, I got a call from Plymouth, uh, Neil Warnock, um, he offered me a two-year contract at Plymouth, and I was like, I'd already signed for Weymouth.
0: Um,
1: So I phoned the chairman and I was like, oh, you know, can I get out of the contract because I've got a chance to go pro? And he just laughed and said, I'll see you at pre-season. So I ended up going to... But look, it's like that sliding doors. well did Warnock say? Did you have a chat I with Warnock? I could have gone and played football, but would I have achieved the things that I achieved as an athlete?
0: Yeah, did, did you have a chat with Warnock face to face? No,
1: never face to face. Oh like, man gutted. Yeah, I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you say, you could have it could have been a massive tender, you could be a pro footballer, but then again, what what would have happened to all your medals? They would have been uh, exactly. exactly. Um take it back to your early years then, because that gets a lot of attention in the book. Um, part of your life you've not spoken too much about about your upbringing on, on my side. Um, how was that? Because I know it was kind of a, a turbulent time. You lost a friend as well, um, fairly young, I think eighteen.
1: Yeah, well, I was born into a single single parent family, just my mum raising myself and my sister. And uh, look, at times it was really really tough financially. Um, my mum was fantastic in making sure we always had a hot meal at night and different stuff like that. But Um, She was always working two, three jobs, which meant that there was a lot of free time, I guess, and I didn't necessarily use my time in in the best way. Um, I was bullied a little bit um, early on, and um, that kind of led me towards a gang um, where I just felt safer. Also, I had a big growth spurt where I I grew quite tall, and um, it just meant that being bullied, yeah didn't happen as often as um, it, it it had when I was younger. And um, yeah, just being a part of the gang, just, yeah, different stuff just went on in my life. And I got to those crossroads that always happens in life where you have to make important decisions. And unfortunately for me, it was after one of my friends was murdered. Um, yes, again, another life-changing moment. I remember going to the funeral, um, they had an open casket and I remember just coming out afterwards and walking down the stairs and my mum was at the bottom of the stairs of this church and she just said, you know, will you leave? You need to leave because she heard that I was on a hit list and yeah, obviously as my mum. She was very concerned and yeah, those days, those days were tough days, were tough yeah. days. You kind of... You're growing up and you understand one side of life. I always say poverty doesn't discriminate. So whether you're black or white, we, we were all growing up in poverty, um, just trying to get by. Um, but once he lost his life, it was it was really, really tough and difficult. And I had the options basically to move to London and train with a coach called Bruce Longdon. He used to coach Sally Gunner or move to South Wales um, and worked with Malcolm Arnold, who was coaching Colin Jackson. And I just felt if I went to London and things weren't going right, I'd probably just end up right back in, similar, in a similar circle. So um, I decided to step out of my comfort zone and move to South Wales. And, and I'm
0: still here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in a way you were still here, kind of, until a while back. But, you know, once it leave? I can imagine being in this sort of gang culture, even though you had the opportunity uh, through your talent which I imagine other people in that in the same culture didn't have was it easy to step away I can imagine maybe that hold or the guys you you involved with maybe weren't letting go as easy as you um
1: could. I was looking that respect that my my friends respected uh, my decision um and understood my decision uh, with regards to was it easy no um, I drive home every weekend and, you know, probably after about six months, it suddenly dawned on me that I was driving back every weekend, but nobody was coming to see me. And I think that made that transition a little bit easier. Um, I understood also that I, I was blessed with a talent and a gift and I could either use my gift in the right way or waste it. So I think ending up in South Wales just gave me the opportunity really to slow down um, Manchester's hustle bustle and quick pace but moving to South Wales and especially moving to where I moved to I moved to Abbargoid so yeah it was it was very slow
0: (laughs) I I, I imagine you've really because you stayed down and that's what 20 years and more now you've really really enjoyed South Wales
1: I love South Wales you know God's country it's (laughs) a it's a fantastic place and you know to wake up each day and look and see the hills and greenery and yeah and more importantly the people the people were always friendly and welcoming so yeah it was um, that made the transition easier I have to say um I think it would have been difficult if I hadn't been accepted obviously being an Englishman <laughs> as well <laughs> there were many reasons there were many reasons not to accept me but yeah the, South, the, the people in South Wales were fantastic. And to be honest, the people in Wales have been, always been fantastic
0: with me. Yeah, we should have put a, a, a Welsh vest in you for the Commonwealth and so not uh, <laughs> an English one. I nearly did. I oh, nearly really?
1: did. Yeah, the Commonwealth Games uh, 2002 in Manchester. If that Commonwealth Games had been in Manchester, I probably would have run for Wales. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh, That's I'm, I'm gutted now.
1: I don't even think that's, that's in the book <laughs> But yeah, a true story. I was really thinking about it because, you know, by that point, um, I had a child who was born in Wales. I was mm. with a girl who was from Wales. And as I say, I'd always been accepted in Wales. Um, a lot of people at times thought I was actually Welsh. So it was just one of those situations where I felt like I wanted to give something back. Um, but then the Commonwealth Games, when it was announced, ended up being in Manchester. And it was just like, that's my hometown. You know, um, as I said earlier, I always think far ahead, but I never thought that I'd get the opportunity to run in Manchester. Um, and yeah, probably that's, that's one of my biggest highlights ever, uh, to get the opportunity to compete in a Commonwealth Games in Manchester, be the captain,
0: yeah.
1: uh, carry the flag into the stadium. The opening ceremony, they're just magical moments in my life.
0: Yeah, and you got a gold in the the 4x1 as well, and and bronze in the 200. So it's kind of like being at the top of the podium in Manchester. Um, Would have been amazing. Yeah,
1: and look, the time before the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, I'd actually split up with my partner, and I was going through a really bad time, depression, and... I I contemplated suicide and it was a really difficult period. And uh, I think one of the things that kept me going and kept me focused and kept me believing um, that I could get out of the rut that I was in was the fact that the Commonwealth Games were in Manchester and I I had to be there. Um, That's just the way I saw it. I had to be there and I would do everything in my power to be there. So winning those medals were... They were crazy medals yeah, cause yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't in the best shape um, I was just trying to make do <laughs> 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 it was one of those situ- yeah it was one of those situations where well this is where I'm at you know all I can do is be mentally strong and have full belief in my in, in what I can achieve and I remember going out for the final of the 200 meters and walking into the stadium and Every step that I took, I'd hear somebody go, come on, Darren, you can do it. And it it was crazy. I remember like breaking down a little bit before the race. Yeah, I shed a few tears because it'd been such a long, hard struggle to get there. And then all these people had belief in in me when I didn't really have full belief in myself. And yeah, they inspired me to that bronze medal. I still don't know how I won it. (laughs) They sucked you to the line. (laughs) They sucked me to the line, 100%. Um...
0: Touching just briefly, you're saying you're with depression and, and, and mental health, because obviously it's kind of a lot more attention, a lot more help seems to be about for people um, these days. Did you get any support back then to kind of progress? Because imagine with time you did get better and, and things were easier.
1: Um, I, I was lucky. I didn't go and see a counsellor or somebody like that, but one of my friends um, told me a story and... That kind of shut me out of it. Um, he'd been shot uh, a number of times, and he had found the will and the power to forgive the people that shot him. Mm. And um, what he kind of showed me is how how serious and how bad is your situation, or are you just making it feel and seem worse than it truly is? And you know um, that helped me snap out of it. Uh, it was difficult. It was difficult, but yeah. A lot was self-healing, um, reading a lot of books and just gaining that confidence. I think that's what happens with mental health. You, you go down a route where you stop believing in yourself. Um, you don't feel the person that you were before you lose self-worth. You don't value yourself. It's hard each day to get up and be motivated. And You know, no similar with the, with the head injury. You know, I had to go through that where I, there was depression, um, I'd gone from being able to run around, drive my car, to ride, can't drive my car I'm on medication every day. I feel groggy, I just no motivation. But I think I was able to draw back on the experience in, leading into 2002 where I, I, I knew what depression felt like. And I think that's the biggest thing. Um, people realising when they are depressed and trying to do something about it, uh, sometimes we're in denial or we just don't know that we're going through a depressed state. So I think the important thing or the lucky thing for me was I, I dealt with depression before and in my mind, I felt like I, I could defeat it again. And, and luckily here I am now talking to you.
0: Um, I'm going to back a bit on a segue, going back to your, to your childhood because um, somebody's taken claim for, for turning you or making you a sprinter or, or for the career. Is a, a formal friend of yours in school, Kyle Pilkington? Is it what he's <laughs> saying—the fact that he, um, he's the one <laughs> that put that spark in you?
1: Yeah, that's that's a funny one. Yeah, when we were younger, uh, we used to have to, a go kart, and um, obviously, with me being quicker than everybody else, I was a, a bit like the bobsleigh. I was the guy <laughs> that that yeah didn't have the fun in, in the car, but I was the one that would push everybody. So yeah. He, I don't know if you could take claim, but the story is definitely true.
0: Yeah. Are you still in touch with him? Because obviously he's got on. No, onto-
1: I know, like no I said- unfortunately. It would, you know what? It would be great to, to still be in touch and speak with him because we've been through so much yeah. to get off the campus state that we were on and achieve the things that we've achieved. It's, it, it's amazing, but it's also inspiring to the yeah. kids that are still on the estate. Just to show them that look, if you want to believe in yourself, then anything is possible. So, uh, yeah, it'd be good to be in contact yeah. one day.
0: Just a quick one about him. Was he grumpy back then as well?
1: Yeah, he's the same, <laughs> that dry sense of humour.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's why I liked him. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to athletics, obviously you kind of, you've had an amazing career. I remember watching you through the years as well. Um, how was it, you know, training with, with the likes of of Colin Jackson, you know, a hero of mine, obviously, being Welsh as well. How was it coming down to that environment in South Wales? And I'm glad to see, well, maybe upset in one way, you haven't adopted the South Australian accent either. <laughs> yeah,
1: most people think I'm from Birmingham. <laughs> so I think that's halfway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, I was, I was very fortunate. Uh, Linford Christie, from the first time I'm, we met when I was, like, 15, you know, um believed that I was going to be the next, the next sprint sensation. Um, So I was very fortunate to be around people from very early on. Um, Seeing and being around Colin Jackson was uh, uh, an education. Um, Just how professional the attention to detail, you know, um, a lot of people see sports people perform, but don't necessarily, know or see the detail that goes into each performance and I think um, being around Linford Christie and Colin Jackson enabled me to just see what it would take to get to that next level um, if you don't have people like that around you then you're kind of you're kind of guessing them and you're going to make a lot of mistakes um, and I think by being around those people it just helped me make less mistakes I was able to to watch and and grow and learn and yeah, just, just take on board what, what it would take to realize your dreams. But yeah, win medals. Um, from a young kid, I loved winning medals. I didn't do it for the money. It was for the, always for the medals. So to be around those guys, um, they, they, they were the education in how do you win medals and, how to, how to, and more importantly, how to create a legacy um, that will inspire the next generation.
0: Yeah, uh, I assume, especially on an individual level, that 100-meter uh, silver, uh, silver medal 200-meter was, was the highlights for you?
1: Yeah, um, that, was a crazy, that was a crazy season. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the shoe company that I was with uh, at the time didn't believe that I was going to do anything in Sydney. So they got, they got rid of me just before the British Championships. Oh. So um, I signed with a different shoe company. <laughs> um but what i did rather than have a large retainer um because they said oh look you know we we can't pay you a lot so i was was like well that's fine but i want bonuses really good bonuses so like they had, had bonuses in the contract for winning a medal at the olympics i had bonuses in the contract for finishing in the top 10 in the world over 100 200 meters and uh I just had a feeling through the whole of that year that something special was going to happen. And I think at the British Championships, I won the 200 metres, um, finishing ahead of Christian Malcolm. And yeah, once I got to Sydney, just the, the energy and, and the feeling just felt so right. And Atul Bolden was one of the athletes that had beat me. Well, he was the athlete that beat me at the World Juniors. So there was a bit of... I want revenge. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I was going to ask you, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'd waited a long time and it was like I wanted revenge. And as I say, I just felt in fantastic shape. And I just remember that my tactic going into the final was that I would come off the bend in the lead and I would give everything I've got. And if anybody was capable of beating me, then so be it. And uh, I, yeah, in that last 30 metres, the Greek athlete went past but I was able to hold off Uh, Atul Bolden and Ovid Thompson and yeah claim uh, an Olympic silver medal that nobody thought I could get and look by the end of the season I then went to the Grand Prix final which is uh, a big competition in athletics where you gain points through the season Um, and if you gain enough points you're invited to the final so I ended up going there and racing over the 100 metres and I won that as well. So that season I ended up being ranked number two
0: and number three in the world. I'm just thinking here with your sponsorship, ching, 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 ching. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was one of those where, yeah, yeah, apart from winning gold, I hit every target. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, talk about gold. You, you, you won in 2004 uh, the 4x1 gold in Athens. Was that, just because it's a gold medal, is that a greater achievement or how do you compare it to the silver medal?
1: Oh, it, look, it's, it, it's, it's different because you're part of a team um, and you take on board the responsibility of that team. Um, you don't want to let anybody down. When you go and compete for yourself, the only person that you can disappoint and let down is yourself. Um, being part of the relay team, yeah there's a lot of things that can go wrong and you you don't want to How can I put it you don't you don't want to let the team down. Um, you really don't want to let anybody down and from the age of twelve, I dreamt about winning Olympic gold, and I think having won Olympic silver, I had full belief that winning Olympic gold was possible. Unfortunately, going into Athens, I picked up an injury um, in the final training session before flying. Into Athens, and yeah, it didn't look like I was going to be able to claim that Olympic gold that I dreamt about when I was twelve years old. You know, um, I watched Carl Lewis win four Olymp- Olympic gold medals um, at the LA Games in '84, and that's where my inspiration came from. Um, watching him win medals was why I loved winning medals. I always wanted to get on the podium, and the dream was to be at the top of the podium at at an Olympic Games, and uh, as I say, it looked like that wasn't going to happen, uh, and my final chance was a part of that 4x1 100-meter one, relay team, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a
0: bit of a blur, it's, it's a funny one. Um, can, you, can you remember races at all, as in being in the moment of the race, or just kind of I remember,
1: the, that's the only bit I remember. I, well, there's other bits I remember, but the, the, the main bit was competing was uh, just being out there and up against Justin Gatlin, and just thinking look I didn't get to race you properly over 100 or 200 meters but I'm going to show you what would have happened if I hadn't have been injured and that that was my focus um to show yeah if I hadn't got hurt I would have been challenging you for medals because the year before in Paris I finished third um by 100th of a second um yeah, I was 100th of a second away from winning the gold medal. Um, so the confidence going into Athens was immense. I finished fourth as well in Paris uh, in the 200 metres. So I knew my training and the trajectory that I was on was a good trajectory. Uh, and again, a bit like Sydney, I, I felt like Athens was going to be the time where I would, I would have ran sub-10 and would have ran sub-20. I just felt in the best shape of my life. So to have it all pulled away and then my last chance being in the relay, it meant everything. So, look, the dream was to stand at the top of the podium with an Olympic gold medal. And I was lucky enough to achieve that. So, yeah, that has to be the pinnacle.
0: Um, Can I ask you your memories? Obviously, kind of the Dwayne Chambers incident and, and that time. Looking back at that, uh, um, at his decision kind of with the performance enhancing um, drugs, is that taken anything in your book and, and how do you look back at that period?
1: Yeah, look, it's in my book. Um, it's mentioned in the book. Um, but I always felt sorry for Dwayne. Um, it's not one of those situations, look, he cost me medals, he cost me money, but he paid the biggest price. Um, it's... It's a stigma that'll be potentially with him for the rest of his life. Um, and when it happened, he was a young guy. And I always had belief in him that he could be successful without drugs. I remember racing him to, uh, in the European Champs in nine, 1998, where I finished first and he finished second. And he was, He's younger than me, but the potential was evident then. Um, so for me, it always just feels like a shame if I'm honest. It just feels like a shame. It's mentioned in the book, but I, I just don't go, I, I don't feel any animosity uh, towards him then. I think that's the best thing to say. Um, we, we see each other, we speak, and, and look, he made life, life-changing decisions, and I've not been perfect throughout my life, so, yeah, you, you can't sit around and just judge people. He made a mistake, and it was a big mistake, and and it's unfortunate for him.
0: Um, I'm going to get a bit sports geeky with you, if you don't mind. Um, I mentioned this earlier, I love my rugby, I love my football. Um, I'm jealous that you got to work with Jonah Lomu, who is my probably ultimate rugby hero in one way.
1: Wow. Um, absolute legend. Um, that occurred through Tristan Bevan, uh, who wrote the book. Uh, he... I'd seen Jonah when he moved, when he came to Wales and he wanted to do some work, do some uh, sprint work. I was still running at the time and um, he had a conversation with Tristan because I said, look, the club have to be okay with it. Um, I don't want to upset anybody. And Tristan felt it was a a good idea and um, it it was lovely to spend that that time with him uh, before he unfortunately passed away uh, absolute gentleman um, uh, just a just a superstar look it still hurts me now that that he's gone because he he's, he was gone too soon but yeah just a great guy um, I'll never forget uh, one training session when he was running towards us and we used to pull a, a big tyre in training and uh, he was running towards me pulling this tyre and his knees were looked like they were as high as his head. And I just remember thinking, how do you tackle him? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't just think anybody he, had the answer for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, just, just, the way, just the way he runs is scary. Uh, the fact that he could get his his big frame, because he was a big guy, but the fact that he could get his big frame moving um, so well. Yeah, I was just in awe, you mm-hmm. know, to have the opportunity to spend time with a legend. Um, yeah it was an absolute pleasure and also after doing a few sessions he also brought on another legend he brought another legend with him um, which was Lee Halfpenny right. a young Lee Halfpenny came and joined in some of the sessions so you know it just shows what kind of guy he was um, not only was he trying to get himself better but he was also looking out for the future superstars.
0: Yeah um, you've done a lot of sprint work that was a big area of a career coaching um, footballers, rugby players. Um, who are the, kind of the athletes that you kind of turned up to see and went, wow, he's got some amazing genetic ability and he, he could be a sprinter?
1: Yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate, really, to work at the likes of Saracens, Wasps, um, Cardiff Blues, uh, Chelsea, Middlesbrough, yeah, I've worked, I've worked at some crazy places. It's uh, it's crazy. But uh, Christian Wade, Christian Wade, who's uh-huh. now gone on to the NFL, working yeah. with him was really good. Uh, very athletic, very quick. Again, low centre of gravity, could change direction just like that. Um, Courtney, Courtney Beal, uh, Elliot Daly I've worked with. Yeah, uh, Mark Quato, Richard Wigglesworth I've worked with. It's uh, so I work with them at Sell Sharks. It's yeah, the names just keep going. Yeah,
0: yeah, ken covered on the list as well. Yeah,
1: well, yeah, that's what I was just about to say. Then uh, I got a call the one day uh, from the doctor at Chelsea. Now the doctor at Chelsea used to be the doctor of Great Britain Athletics, so he called me and said, "Oh, are you doing any sprint training?" So this is kind of how I got into it. And uh, so I was like, "Well, not really, but I can do." So um, he said, uh, okay, because I want you to work with Andrei Shevchenko. I was like, what, Andrei Shevchenko, who was like European footballer of the year? It <laughs> was like, yeah, yeah. I wanted to come down and work with him. And it, it was funny, uh, Jose Mourinho was the manager at the time and he wouldn't let me coach Shevchenko at the training ground. So we, we ended up doing training sessions on a t- tennis court um, but we were still able to get him working and moving as quickly as he wanted. But, yeah, working with him was an absolute pleasure. Really, really nice guy.
0: And Thierry Henry, I heard um, he was probably amongst the the most special players you coached as well from an athletic Well,
1: I never coached him. We met. Ah, OK, we met. sorry. Yeah, um, Thierry Henry is the player who I always uses the example um, of how if you get the speed right and you know how to use the speed in the right way that it just it opens up the game and it buys you more time um the way that he used to run was similar to how sprinters run with that extra relaxation and if you relax it just enables you to get in better positions when you're shooting so um yeah having worked with drogba i worked with drogba and nelka and people like that when i was working at chelsea um but yeah, Thierry Henry is always the example that I use. And in the current footballers, um, Mbappe, who plays for Paris Saint Germain, wow. he's another example of being able to use your pace in the right way. Be able to, because a lot of people can run fast, but they can't run fast and be relaxed. But when you look at these guys, they can run fast and they're relaxed. And yeah, that's always the template that I use, Thierry Henry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> then probably the guy you have worked with who could potentially had a sprinting career over a shorter distance, it was Troy at Wolves, who was incredibly quick.
1: Yeah, that was crazy. Um, again, the doctor at Chelsea ended up at Middlesbrough and he called me to work with Rudy Stead. So I went down to Middlesbrough, spoke with Rudy because I'd worked with Rudy when he was at Cardiff City. Um, so... <laughs> Well, I actually worked at Cardiff City the year that they got promoted to the Premier League. Oh, so that's, a, that's
0: the reason way to is it? <laughs> <It's> your coaching?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's my claim to fame. <laughs> I, I've still got a, a big placard that uh, the manager gave us all for that season. It was a crazy season because um, we knew we had to get promoted. But having worked with Rudy Gustead at Cardiff, he then moved to
0: Middlesbrough.
1: So he had a few problems. Yeah, he had a few problems and uh, Rudy dead. So uh, I went down to Middlesbrough and met him. And uh, that's when I got introduced to Traore. And I remember going into the canteen while the guys were, were eating. And I just went, you don't realise, this is what I said to him. I went, you don't realise how good you could be. So I said, I'm here to fix you. and Yeah. <laughs> I know, it was a bit bit of a bold statement. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But what did he say back? uh, He was just in shock. (laughs) you know, I said to him, look, I watched you at Barcelona when you were a kid. And uh, clearly, you've lost your way somehow. And so fast, so fast. But everything that I did was at 100%. So all I did was teach him how to run at 70%, 80%, 90%. You know, one of the things is as I was trying to say to him, your 90% is probably faster than everybody in the league. Your 80% is probably faster than every defender in the league. So I need to get you uh, away from working at 100%. I said I need to, basically I call, I call it teaching you how to use different gears. Because mm. once you can use the different gears, then you've got control of the speed. Um, whilst you're just running at 100 miles an hour, like I did when I was a footballer, you've got no control. And I think it was the fact that I knew where I went wrong as a footballer that I was able to help him.
0: Yeah. Um, Darren, I could talk to you all day. I, I love kind of just <laughs> hearing all these names. Um, it's, it's amazing. But it's, just on a final point, it's worth saying, um, on top of all these um, sporting accolades, sports coaching, you're obviously a businessman as well, um, which you're still working hard at with now as well off, off the field.
1: Yeah, um, the year that I retired in 2006, um, I set up a sports nutrition company called Pro Athlete Supplementation. I set it up with uh, the nutritionist that looked after me throughout my career. Again, crazy story. Um, he just came to me the one day and said, uh, Let's set up a nutrition company. You know, <laughs> will you invest? So he told me how much he wanted investment wise, and I was like, You know what? I'm I've never paid, in my mind, I was like, I've never paid you for everything you did for me. Cause our relationship was such that I would go into the shop, he would see me recommend different products, do my body fat and different things like that. And we just never spoken about payment. So when he said about wanting to set up the nutrition company, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. And if it doesn't work out and you lose my money, it's the money I should have paid you anyway. Um, so I just look success in life comes from people believing in you and he had believed in me as an athlete and bat me and it was my time to believe in him and, and, and believe in his dream and vision so uh, he's actually the nutritionist for the Welsh national rugby team yeah. so uh, look he's gone on to great things so yeah we set, we set that up in 2006 and we've been lucky enough to be a part of Wales winning the Six Nations, Leicester City winning the Premier League. Uh, who knows if that'll ever happen again, but yeah, we were the, uh, the, the sponsors of Leicester
0: City. Amazing, amazing. You've had an amazing career, and honestly, I'm so chuffed that you've had a chat with me. I've uh, really enjoyed the last... I know it's taken half an hour or more but thank you so much for your time really great no
1: thank you I really mm-hmm. appreciate you want to to
0: hear my story <laughs> no that's amazing so uh, the book and Campbell track record out in all good bookstores as they say <laughs> <laughs> cheers mate have a good day thank and, and thank you again for your time
1: nah, no problem thanks mate